The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, stop caulking your drainpipe and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 531 with guests Daniel Wood and Daniel Norwood, recorded live Monday, February 22nd, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now... The man with a mind like a steel trap, rusty and illegal in 35 states, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back. It's Carl. It's Richard. It's .NET. It's fun. And it's it's all good. So, hey, Richard, how are you, man? I'm well, sir. How are you? Got another uh, story for you. Hit me. So a computer science student is studying under a tree, and another one pulls up on a flashy new bike. The first guy says, hey, where'd you get that? The other guy says, while I was studying outside, a beautiful girl pulled up on her bike. She took off all her clothes and says, you can have anything you want. The first student says, good choice. Her clothes probably wouldn't have fit you. (laughs) (laughs) That's sad. That's pretty sad. All right. There's right there. There's a whole bunch of geeks going, I can relate. I can get, I get that. (laughs) So let's just jump into Better Know Framework. Excellent. So I've been talking about obsolete types in .NET 4. Yes, all the uh, the deprecated stuff from .NET 4. System.data.oracle.client. No. Gone. Wow. Yeah. Oracle Command, Oracle Command Builder, Oracle Connection, Oracle Connection String Builder, Oracle Data Adapter, Client Factory, Oracle Permission. So what's the replacement? Well, the replacement is the Oracle data provider for .NET. Oh. So I'm reading an article here on the Oracle's website at shrinkster.com slash 1CWP. 1CWP. Microsoft announced it is deprecating Microsoft Oracle Client, a Microsoft-built.NET data provider for the Oracle database because third-party providers such as Oracle offer superior ADO.NET providers. For existing Microsoft Oracle client developers, this is an opportunity to take a fresh look at the Oracle data provider for .NET, ODP.NET, which is free to download from Oracle. In recent years, Oracle's added new features for performance tuning, user-defined types, advanced queuing, RAC connection pooling, and supporting multiple ODP.NET client versions simultaneously on the same machine. There you go. It's all good. So it's all good. stop using the uh, the old one and move on to one of the new ones. Out with the old, in with the new. There you go. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Uh, Jimmy Engstrom from Sweden. Hey, do we know Jimmy? Uh, Jimmy, I'm sure we've talked to him before, but he sent me familiar. a great email. Let me read this to you. Okay. I'm a faithful listener of your show, and today I found an application that really makes my life a whole lot easier. Give me a link here. I've shrinksterized it because it was quite long. It's shrinkster.com slash 1CWO. So Charlie Whiskey Oscar. Awesome. It's blog post about a tool. It's an application that can convert a mono-touch solution to a Visual Studio solution. This makes it possible to edit your mono-touch application directly from Visual Studio and take advantage of your favorite code generation and refactoring tools. 
making writing iPhone applications a whole lot more fun and perhaps, above all else, easier. Well, that's definitely a welcome thing. That's a good thing. You still need Mono Develop and Xcode to debug and build the iPhone apps, but the time spent with them will be quite less. Don't get me wrong, Mono Develop is quite a nice IDE and actually in some cases better than Visual Studio, but I'll choose Visual Studio over Mono Develop any day. Thanks for the great show, Jimmy Engstrom. Jimmy, great lead, dude. Nice one. Mug for you, off to Sweden. That's definitely worth a mug. Yeah, you bet. Hey, it's time for the mystery sound of the day. All right, hit me. Ready? What was that? No idea. That was the sound of a Microsoft Bob CD breaking in half. (laughs) (laughs) Those things are collector's items, man. Yeah, I know. You like that one? You like that guy with the Edison cylinder. (laughs) Oh, that was so bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that guy who breaks the wax cylinder. That's crazy. That's at shrinkster.com slash 1CWQ. That uh, the guy is basically holding an, an old wax cylinder that uh, Edison had made before the invention of the phonograph. And he's saying it's such a one-of-a-kind thing. And then his shaky hands just crush it. Yeah, and it uh, breaks into bits. Falls to pieces. Disaster. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> Our guests today are from Quest Software, Daniel Norwood and Daniel Wood. And yes, I realize the challenges that having... Two Daniels, both with Wood in their last name, is going to propose for us, but we'll figure it out. Uh, Daniel Norwood is a product manager for Quest Software. He brings over 10 years' experience in the software industry, specializing in relational database systems and related technologies. In addition to product management, Daniel has worked in support, testing, and project management capacities, constantly focused on understanding and meeting customers' needs. He spends much of his time speaking and interacting with customers around the globe, ensuring Quest's tools exceed their expectations. Daniel Wood is a development manager for Quest Software. Daniel has over 10 years' experience producing innovative software solutions for database systems and related technologies. In addition to developing database products, Daniel has also worked in scientific computing. Throughout his career, Daniel has worked in product management, sales, and various R&D roles, focusing on understanding how software and information science is evolving to deliver effective tooling to the development community. Welcome, guys. Thanks. Uh, I think I've decided I'm just going to call you DN and DW. Is that okay? That's fair. Sounds good. I like DW. So that's DW we're just speaking to there. (laughs) Uh, this is a this is a first. This is a new problem. I don't think I've ever had to we've had names quite this close to try and sort them out. So we're really talking <laughs> about Oracle development in Visual Studio, and uh, that's what this product that we're talking about uh, is all about. Why don't you just tell us a little bit, starting with because we have a very sensitive audience to commercials. You know, is this a free product in uh, or not? And and if not, uh, how much is it? And and then we'll talk about what it does. Okay. Well, I hate to sort of start the conversation out on a on a, a sad note, but we don't actually have the pricing determined yet. The uh, the product is on its way to market and is due to be available in mid April. Okay. And that's uh, that pricing is is TBD uh, at the moment. But uh, we are planning to license it, just like Visual Studio is licensed by the developer. Mm-hmm. And um, um, you know, we should be pricing it pretty competitively. Now, this is, um, is it essentially an Oracle driver? We're talking about Toad here, by the way, which is part of Project Fuse, uh, an Oracle database schema provider for Visual Studio 2010. Is this a um, much more than an OLEDB driver for Oracle, which we've had for quite a while? Yes. Yeah, certainly it is. You know, um, Microsoft has had, um, as of a couple of years ago, you know, they'd introduced um, a bunch of database features in Visual Studio. Um, I think a lot of people know it as Data Dude, and those features were really designed for um, you know, to help the, the Visual Studio developer um, make some of the changes to the database as they went about uh, making their their uh, code adjustments for their application, and that was really designed originally for SQL Server. And what Microsoft has done in the 2010 edition of Visual Studio is that they've opened that up to third parties and vendors to provide support for other database platforms. 
So that's where Quest and Code come in, is that we've been working very closely with Microsoft over the last two years to develop uh, the capability for Oracle development uh, within those features. Now, when they started out in 2005 with this, and I think we did shows on this right back at the beginning, Carl, there yep. was a whole separate SKU. There was a specific version of Studio for database pros. Right. But in 2010, they've now made it so that those features are in every version of Studio from Pro on up. Right. Right. And it's still pretty much SQL-centric is what we're talking about here. Yeah, it, it is. And um, uh, what I understand, um, you know, working closely with Microsoft and, and doing a little bit of research into the, the products and how they're they're set up with the new bundling, is that uh, the professional edition does provide some of the, the basic abilities to be able to connect and work with an offline uh, representation of the database, which is definitely one of the really unique characteristics of uh, Microsoft's solution. Uh, but then Premium and Ultimate really build upon that with um, uh, a lot of features for teams that work together. Um, mm-hmm. Microsoft calls, you know, talks about their application lifecycle management, their ALM, and those two SKUs are really focused on enabling that that um, really nice workflow story of how an entire team can work together with really good visibility and now include the database piece. And so that's that's where uh, the Toad extension comes in, is in really adding that value um, for the Oracle professional back into Visual Studio. Now, does that mean that somebody who's used to the Data Dude sort of interfaces, uh, you know, in Visual Studio already will just seamlessly be able to work with Oracle, or do you have your own uh, interfaces and ways of working? Largely, yes. There are a few, um, when it comes to ways of working, uh, we should be identical to um, to Visual Studio because all we're essentially doing is making the Visual Studio features work on the Oracle platform. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, so it should be very, very familiar. There are a few areas where we've been able to go beyond what Microsoft has done, for instance, like with a, a Visual Table Designer, right. uh, just to make some things a little bit easier for folks. And those are things that you, I, I imagine that would be more appropriate for Oracle developers than for SQL developers. Right. Like in, in this case, uh, our table designer, since we're talking about that, um, only works for the Oracle tables that you'd be building with an Oracle project. Yeah. I guess this really digs into what are the significant differences between SQL Server and Oracle? Well, I know that uh, you've got in, in, in store procedures anyway, you have this uh, PL SQL, right, that you guys use where you can sort of embed HTML write in your procedures and then hit those directly from a web browser. I know we've got that in, in, in SQL Server, a little, uh, but I've seen a lot of work done in Oracle that way. This is Daniel Wood. When it comes to um, Oracle development and PLSQL, um, PLSQL is a language that's been around for a long time, and it's evolved so that you do um, all sorts of things. You mentioned embedded HTML right in the stored proc. Um, beyond that, there's other ways of integrating um, the Oracle database into the application. Um, but what we've seen over maybe the last decade is um, sort of the application layer being abstracted out of the Oracle database. So um, the code practice there is to keep the PLSQL code blocks tight and working with just the data set and then having sort of like HTML and application level rendering stuff happen outside of the database. Right. And that's where um, really this story um, really takes hold is what Microsoft was looking at doing um, in 2005. And I'm looking at this from a developer perspective. This is me just using Visual Studio, seeing where Microsoft was trying to take the community. In 2005, they introduced the database edition for Visual Studio. Um, and that was our first taste of actually working with database objects and database code blocks inside of an IDE that was traditionally only for writing application code. Um, Now, that story has evolved over the last five years to actually give us some sort of structured way of um, going about database development. And I'm not talking about just writing the the PLSQL code blocks on the Oracle side or the T-SQL code blocks on the SQL Server side. I'm talking about actually containing the objects from the database inside Visual Studio as project items inside your project, then as your application code evolves, 
you can evolve the database objects along with them. And that tight coupling is really the value of what the database edition is delivering. I think this is where most people have a tough jump on understanding what the database edition is really doing for you. This idea that as a database guy, and I've been that guy, that's why I'm you know so stressed, you always think in terms of change scripts when you go from version to version of an app because the database right. always exists. And as you are going to version two, you're not replacing the database. That would be bad. You need to actually write scripts to make the alterations of the database to make it work for version two. And, right. the, and the database edition really seems to fix that, where now I actually just have the new model in version two, and the tool writes the scripts for me. Yeah. So that key is actually having the database objects live as project items in the Visual Studio project and solution is when you do go to V2 or V3 of your database object set, um, when Visual Studio does its build and compile on those object scripts, it is generating just the incremental change between the versions. So when you actually do deploy your application code and those that new version set of database objects, all it's deploying is the actual alter DDL scripts required to rev up the database objects to match the code. And what's cool about that is not only am I pushing just an incremental change, but in most cases, I'm actually preserving data. Um, there's this concept of data in motion. You know, the last thing you want to do is say, okay, I've, I've altered my table. Now I'm going to drop my indexes, drop and recreate the table. That's a deal breaker for any environment. So right. it's important that when you rev up the table that you're just making the incremental change using an alter script whenever possible. Now, this begs the question that I'm comfortable with that if you're going to add a column, if you're going to add a new table, maybe mess with an index, I don't have a problem with that, even change a column with larger. But what happens if you're going the other way, if you're actually removing something? Yeah, so there's there, there are obviously scenarios where there's going to be destructive changes. So that's mm -hmm. when, you know, you take a column and you shorten it or you drop a column or you change a table in such a way that maybe um, an index that supports a primary key can no longer be created. Right. You know, there's, there's, there's definitely destructive scenarios. And in those cases, you're still generating that change script. Um, but you're going to get a warning that, you know, what you're doing could cause data loss. Then that's right. your first flag to to look at what's changing and actually, you know, pay attention to what you're doing. And you, and you can see the scripts that it's generating. Like you can actually look at the, the, the DML that it's writing. Yeah. And that's, that's actually, there's a couple of scenarios um, of how you actually deploy. So in Visual Studio, you have a concept of building a project. And there's also the concept of deploying a project. Right. And deploy in a database project is very similar to deploy in a website project where you're working on your code, you build it to make sure it works. And then when you hit deploy, you know, you're pushing those website objects, the assemblies out to IIS in the same way as when you're working inside a database project. When I actually go through the build and then I get to that deploy step, the deploy can either be push the objects from Visual Studio straight into the database, or you can deploy where you're actually generating that script so that you can review it and then execute the script. Or you could actually do both if you just want to push and then produce the change script sort of for your own record keeping. Well, you know where I would run into this is there's a group of DBA types out there, and I bet you they're even more prevalent in Oracle than they are in SQL Server, that won't have anything to do with Studio. They have their ways of managing their databases, and by golly, I'm not going to use that crazy newfangled tool. Yeah, we have, we have loads of them <laughs> on the SQL side. <laughs> we can't get rid of them. And yeah, and you know, most organizations have become entrenched in, in some type of secure change management process where they have that specific change management tool. And that's why deploying to being able to deploy to a script is important because that script will carry right into that change management process. And I'm not saying those guys are bad guys either because, you know, database guys, it's a tough job because if the data gets damaged, it's always your fault. It doesn't matter who did it. It's your fault. So, and and th that's why these processes are in place. It's not, you know, to make life difficult. It's to make life livable. At the end of the day, the DBA just wants to go home, and they don't want to get pinged saying, you know, this 
change, you know, just wrecked everything and you're going to have to spend all weekend fixing it. Yeah, every customer is now named John Smith. Sorry about that. <laughs> right. Oh, and by the way, you all owe, you know, $500,000 back payments on your mortgages. Yeah. You know, that's <laughs> <laughs> Little boo-boos, you know. I mean, the main thing here is being able to to bring a new tool into play here to generate a script for the next build of the app and then still feed it into your existing change management process. Yeah, and, and the the other value that's you know not so obvious there is because we're using this tool that generates an incremental change um, and because in, in a typical scenario, Visual Studio is bound to Team Foundation Server, which we can get into in a little bit. Right. Um, that means all of your project items, which are those database objects, are now stored in source control. And that means that if I push that incremental change script out to the database and I decide that, you know, that's not correct or the app code isn't, you know, ready to be deployed, I can actually go back to the previous version in source control, pull that out, do a build of that in Visual Studio, and get a change script that's going to take me back from, you know, V2 in the database back to V1. And again, it's an incremental change to go backward. Now, and that's really cool. That's voodoo. I'm sorry, guys. Reverting a version of an app is tricky enough. Reverging the version of a database? The key there is um, making the changes that are incremental and making sure that your alters preserve data. Wow. Yeah, because it, I've written the scripts. I've been the database guy who had to go from version 1 to version 2. And the first problem you run into with databases is it's not like there's a big sign on your database that says, hey, I'm version 1. You have to go through and say, well, what are the characteristics of the database of version one? Well, the customer table looks like this, and you know this store proc looks like that. And you start to do a bunch of tests and say, okay, I feel like this is version one. And then you start applying alters. And then you find out, oh, no, it's not really a version one. This was 1.1, and there was a couple of alters that now won't be valid. Like, it's, it's, it's horrible. Yeah, so that's you called it voodoo. Um, we'll tweak that and we'll call it magic. The magic <laughs> of the database edition is is, in, is you know living underneath Visual Studio when you have a database project open is the offline database model. Um, so what Visual Studio does when you open a database project, and this is whether it's a SQL Server project or an Oracle project, is it takes all of those project items and it builds an offline representation of the database. And what's key about that is now all of your developers working inside of Visual Studio have a single version of the truth. This becomes um, your single version of what the database is supposed to look like. And as long as you, you maintain that methodology, um, you're always going to be able to rev up or rev down versions of the database. Now, obviously, there, there, there are loopholes um, in this methodology, let's say, for example, I, I've revved up from V1 to V2, and then the DBA went in on his own and, and you know, started making DDL tweaks to objects. Right. You know, that would be a violation of the methodology, and that's where you could get into trouble trying to rev up or rev down from what you have inside of Visual Studio. But as long as Visual Studio um, is your single version of the truth, then you can rev up and down, and those incremental change scripts no longer become voodoo. They actually become your saving grace if you've ever revved up and you discover that you've revved up with a bug. Because you can get back. Right. It gives you, it gives you essentially an undo button on your, on your database deployments. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. If you're developing a new line of business application, then you probably tried the latest Silverlight version. Now you can achieve even greater results by combining the functionalities of Silverlight 4 Beta with the richness of third-party controls. Our friends at Telerik are the first vendors to offer native support for Silverlight 4 Beta in their RAD Controls for Silverlight 4 CTP suite. The Telerik controls let you tap into the framework's great potential, like the native right mouse click and more. Be sure that all 38 controls benefit from the latest and greatest in Silverlight 4, so you can start building compelling applications right away. Check out the product at Telerik.com slash Silverlight. And hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik. Okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be more critical. 
the bug's not going to crop up the moment we fire the app. It's going to crop up four days later when people have been entering into the new data structures. And it's right. going to be a nasty one where we're like, we really need to go back. But we don't want to throw the way away the work we've already done. So now I'm thinking about what happens to the data modifications that are being reverted. That's that, And that's an interesting scenario. And that's where we start to get creative. So there, there are actually feasible ways of, of handling that scenario inside the product. Um, what you would end up doing is going out and creating a project inside of Visual Studio and importing the existing structure from the database. Okay. And then you can compare that project to your prior project, and you can generate a diff and sync script from that. And then that would be your way of moving backward. Now, you, data in motion becomes important there. Because if you've now added a new column that um, you know has received data from um, your business process, and the move backward would be to drop that column, then you have an issue, and that's just that's just a scenario where essentially you're stuck. So that's something that you know would be forward looking in both sides on the SQL Server and the Oracle database projects. Is how would you actually maintain that data and let let the developers move backward temporarily and then move forward. Yeah, I think I'd want to leave the column in place but ignore it otherwise. Yeah, so, I mean, if we were just to speculate on that, that's probably the right way to do it is you would leave the column in place and inside of Visual Studio, your offline model maybe just marks that column as not there yet. So if you're doing any kind of modeling in your project, you know that that column's not quite there yet in your offline version. But then when you go to deploy, you can count on it being there. Right. But this is, you know, this is forward-looking stuff. And he's, yeah, these are tricky problems. And they, there's a reason why they haven't been solved very well before. They're very hard to deal with. They, but the idea that, well, for me, what's really exciting is the idea that the data model goes with the app in the build. Because that's always been a problem. Right. And that's that's really you know, step one to solving these these complicated issues of how a database lives and evolves. Step one to that is getting that single version of the truth, which is the offline model that you can work on and that you can count on to produce change scripts. And from there, as the story evolves over the next few years, we're going to see all sorts of innovative solutions based on that. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the SQL Server project or the Oracle project. What's great about the way Microsoft engineered um, Visual Studio 2010 is that not only is this openly extensible for anybody to go in and write a database schema provider. Right. So in other words, Microsoft wrote one for Visual for SQL Server. Quest wrote one for Oracle. You know, any developer in the world could come along and decide, I want to write the same database project system for, you know, database XYZ. Sure. Um, so that's extensible. But then there's another layer of extensibility that's not quite, um, you know, not so well advertised in that on top of the SQL Server project and on top of the Oracle project, any developer could come along and write tooling on top of that extensibility. So the projects themselves are open and extensible. So I'll give a specific example. In data generation, there's a feature that lets you generate and test data and populate that into tables. Um, there's a fixed number of generators. But uh, for myself as a developer, if I was using that and I decided I would like to have a generator that creates credit card numbers, I could actually go in and write an extension to the data generator hmm. that when I go into Visual Studio, I get another dropdown. And instead of picking the, you know, the random number generator or the random character generator, I could actually pick my credit card generator and I could use that. And that's that's what's great about the, these database projects is I see all sorts of developers creating in, interesting solutions based on top of it. So not just the projects themselves, but those extensions on top of the projects. Are there are there any things that uh, Data Dude, let's call it that because I love that name, does um, for SQL that uh, Project Fuse or Toad will will not do? For Oracle, are there any yeah, exceptions? So, yeah, so on the SQL Server side, Microsoft definitely had a head start on us. So we had to pick and choose um, the features that we thought would be most important in our version one release. So you will see uh, a few more features on the SQL Server side. 
Um, a couple of those, for example, are um, data comparison. So on the SQL Server side, you could actually pick two tables and do a side-by-side -side compare of the data in those tables. Um, that's something that we're not going to release in version one on the Oracle side. And that's the data in the tables, not the structure of the tables. Not the structure, it's the data, correct. Okay. So as far as the structures go, both products, the SQL Server and the Oracle um, projects, um, will do schema comparisons. So you can compare all the structures and all of your database objects and then generate change scripts based on that. But on the Oracle side, we won't do data compare just yet. Um, the, uh, the other feature that comes to mind is static code analysis. So on the SQL Server side, um, and this is for .NET developers, um, you know, FX Cop comes to mind. Um, on the SQL Server side, you can do something similar where you do code analysis on all of your um, SQL Server code. And that's something that we didn't release on the Oracle side yet. Now, that's um, something that Daniel Norwood could speak more to. But um, what we're looking for in the future, something that we'll end up focusing on, is actually the PL SQL development aspect. Um, so right now inside the product, it's very easy for Oracle developers to play with database objects, and including stored procs and functions. But um, there's still... Uh, something lacking there when it comes to actually developing the PL SQL code itself. So something we want to focus on in the future is um, providing a, a richer feature set there for actually writing PL SQL code. Yeah, the whole treatment of, of the code side of things, whether T-SQL or PL SQL, is, an, is another layer to this. It's one thing to just manage the data structures and the sort of declarative rules around those data structures. But once you get into coding, well, we could go down a whole line of debugging and testing and actually testing is a huge topic in this if if databases are now part of team system and part of the build they really ought to be part of continuous integration as well and they are and that's that's actually a, a good point to touch on is um part of team foundation server 2010 and visual studio 2010 is this continuous build cycle where i can build test build test deploy um, and unit testing is included in the uh, SQL Server database project. So, you know, on check-in or however I set my rules, um, Team Foundation Server can build out my or my uh, database project and actually do unit testing on it and give me the results back. And so you could actually have a build fail because of tests related to the database that failed. Correct. Unit testing becomes part of your build process. Uh, that's that's magic too. Well, and that's that's just a feature of the data dude set, right? Yeah, yeah, that's actually part of the the data dude, right? So most of what you'll see with with the Toad extension for Visual Studio is making data dude work on the Oracle platform. So it's right. It'll be nice for those who are familiar with it on the SQL Server side uh, because the transition will be very easy for them. They they can work in in either one because it's very familiar. Yeah, and that's huge. Yeah, I just don't feel like there's enough people who know about what Data Dude can do for them. Yeah, so uh, I'm looking at the um, the Project Fuse by Quest Software uh, technical overview sheet, and there's a list of great features here, so let's just go over them. You can import Oracle databases. You can track changes in TFS. You can create test data and unit tests, modify and refactor databases, Compare schemas and merge changes, which we've been talking about. Automate daily builds and also communicate with the team. So uh, it's essentially just bringing all of those great database and team features uh, to Oracle. Yeah, and, and that's actually the first thing that we focused on was actually helping uh, our customers um, move into um, the application lifecycle management methodology that you know, Microsoft is promoting with Team Foundation Server and Visual Studio 2010. And you know, so the first way to do that is actually, how do I get my existing database or my existing scripts into Visual Studio as separate project items that could be stored and versioned in source control? So that's why we focused on the, on the import first. So it feels natural to say, okay, I want to go out, uh, connect to an Oracle database and import my objects. Um, but then the other way of doing that um, is actually importing from legacy scripts. 
And this is an interesting use case. Um, we all know that you know when you work on a database project, you typically store your objects in big, chunky scripts. And it's usually something like one script will have a few create tables and then some create indexes and then create constraints um, and anything else that needs to go along with that. And so you end up having these scripts that are stored logically in your mind based on themes, but they're not factored out as, you know, one database object per script fragment. Right. So we actually have an import from script feature inside the Oracle project where it will go out and it will parse out those scripts and it will break everything up into separate project items. So now if I had a script that created 30 tables and indexes, et cetera, it would actually factor that out and I would have 30 separate project items inside Visual Studio. Now I have that fine-grained tracking um, that I you know, really want from source control. Now when I make a tweak to a single table, I know in source control I've tweaked that one table Whereas if I had tweaked that table in the original legacy script, the only thing I would have in source control is that that script somehow changed. Then I have to do right. text disk to find the specific change. Amen, brother. Oh, you're speaking my pain. I've got, <laughs> I've got, I've got my scripts in source control, and I, but I don't, have, don't know what changed. I end up doing all these compares to try and find all this stuff. Or we end up splitting up all the scripts into individual files per table. And, well, heaven help you if you're trying to find some kind of foreign key constraint. Right. That The foreign key constraint scenario is actually one that we spent time on. And I understand it's a difficult situation when something changes there. And now that we have objects stored separately and granularly, when you make a change, you know there's a change to that single object. And then the offline model in Visual Studio, when you do a build, it could identify any breaking changes that you made to that foreign key relationship. Right. So if I broke something on either end of that, I would get a build error. Yeah. Yeah, and you'd know where to look and what to do. Like it's just this it's th- this shift in mindset from stop thinking change script, start thinking database object, actually the table and its rules. Yeah, so this shift in mindset is something that um it's for People that are, you know, legacy database developers, this is definitely a shift in mindset. But for somebody coming from the .NET side or or the application development side, this is the way they do things already. So this will feel very natural for them. Um, And it's something that, you know, when they go to actually start tacking on some database objects to their app, they're going to be like, okay, this is exactly the way this should work. Yeah, Um, yeah, you're right. The developer will have no problem with this. It's just that this isn't necessarily his problem. Well, unless you're an Oracle guy who now is getting into the .NET world, then you you know then you have the other challenge of learning Visual Studio and all that. But um, I imagine so. Just to be clear, with the brands Toad and Project Fuse, Toad. If you're an Oracle developer, you probably know all about Toad, right? Because right. you guys have had products for Oracle for a long time. Yeah. So Toad is the brand for your Oracle tools, and Project Fuse is really all about um, you know, uh, snuggling up to Visual Studio 2010, right? <laughs> yeah. So you you hit the nail on the head. I mean, Toad originally started as uh, a tool for Oracle application development uh, over 10 years ago, and that has evolved over time into a, a truly a brand where we've got tools for all different database platforms and um, varying types of, of activities. What we found with Visual Studio and working with Microsoft was that you know, this, this new offline methodology that we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about, um, when you begin to really understand it, it becomes very compelling. Um, but, you know, we wanted to, um, to take the strengths of, of our uh, interaction with the Oracle user base through, you know, over a decade of, of, of interaction and help bring them a little bit closer uh, to Visual Studio and to help to, to bridge that gap a little bit. So this Toad extension is, is really designed to, uh, to help, you know, reach out to our Toad users and allow them the benefits of working within Visual Studio uh, as, you know, as their role changes. Now, I guess the other side of this is, is this a tool that will ultimately facilitate migration between the databases or even building one app that works on either database? That would be more forward-looking. Um, it's certainly a conversation that we've waxed philosophical about. Um, because you you do get very close when you boil things down to having this offline model, and it becomes a matter of writing the code that translates between the offline models. Um, 
you know, obviously that's forward looking. You could speculate on that. Um, technology wise, it gets us pretty close. Um, but that's not something that's, you know, published on roadmaps. Right. Yeah, Richard, what, what I would say is, like Daniel said, as far as, you know, actually physically, you know, being able to merge these, that's, or migrate these, that's definitely forward looking. But when we talk about the user, the person who is actually using Visual Studio today, we are bridging a gap for them. So today, if I'm a Visual Studio developer and I'm more familiar with, with SQL, I can actually begin to do work on Oracle uh, as my as my job requires. Now, because I'm using features that are very familiar to me, a workflow that's very familiar to me, even though the database is a different database. So it's sort of a, there's a bit of an abstraction there between uh, the Visual Studio developer and and the database platform that they're targeting to where their their skill set begins to get them from from A to B. So we're beginning to bridge a gap. Uh, for that user, yeah, you're you're softening the blow. The guy who's good at one will will at least have a head start on the other. Although, uh, where I've worked on applications that had to run on multiple databases, we built a fairly robust abstraction layer because we quickly found that if you try to go to that ANSI standard, what works across all databases, you make every database suck equally. Sure. Or, but, you know, consider consider a, a Visual Studio developer who uh, works on a lot of different projects. And today he's working on a project for an application which is, is designed around SQL Server. But what about tomorrow? You know, would, would he be working on a, an Oracle, um, an application that connects to Oracle? Or, you know, like Daniel mentioned earlier, that this uh, framework is extensible. That we could see another uh, database provider for MySQL or for DB2 or for a number of different platforms in the years to come. So sure. it really makes a nice, valuable proposition for the Visual Studio developer that, you know, I can I can go from one to another depending on the needs. So what does the deployment really look like? Do you, do you have, it just generates the scripts? If I, you know, this is always a challenge when doing a, a first rev deployment to a new set of infrastructure of making sure you, the database is actually installed, uh, configured correctly, and then getting the permissions set up right on and, and getting that initial database up and running. How much of this is handled by the tooling now? Well, so that's that's kind of a loaded question because there there is a lot that goes into getting a database to the point where you can actually deploy objects and deploy them in such a way that the application can use them. Um, so the tooling handles a little bit in by way of pre-deploy checks. So it will check to make sure that, for example, if I'm deploying tables to schema A, you know, schema A actually needs to exist and right. actually needs to have permissions to allow me to create objects in that schema. So it checks for those kinds of things. Um, what it does not do is check you know, database configuration or any of the physical uh, aspects of the database, making sure that you know schema A has a table space in Oracle large enough to receive the objects I'm creating. Those kinds of things aren't checked for yet. Now, as, as uh, the product matures, um, I can definitely see, for example, handling more permissions, um, more user slash schema scenarios. Right. Well, and of course, I'm thinking in a SQL Server mindset where we have stuff like SQL Express, literally, you know, free low footprint versions of the database to deploy to the client machine. I don't even know if Oracle does that. Yeah, so uh, we actually try to um, be agnostic to the different versions or the different um, SKU levels of Oracle. Oh, okay. So that's something, and also Oracle actually does a very good job of, um, you know, making the different SKU levels transparent when it comes to schema objects. So they they all should work about the same, and it doesn't really matter how all of that gets deployed. Right. Most of the changes at the SKU level for Oracle are are on the physical side, not the logical side. So Daniel. I'm a developer. I'm starting to get productive with this. We talked about the initial import where I take my existing database, which would, I presume, be some kind of test database, that but it had the accurate schema on it. And now I'm going to start working on it. I'm, I'm doing that, that cycle of write some code, build it, see how it runs, stop, make some changes, go again, right? So where's that database living? How, what am I talking to when that happens? The value of of having an, a database project inside of Visual Studio is that you can have this continuous integration cycle. Um, and that's made possible inside of database projects by having an offline model. 
Um, so I have a database instance. Um, typically, I'll have one in development, uh, maybe one in staging and one in production. And right. these are the database instances that I'm aware of. So what I would do at some point to start off the, the whole process is I would import from my production back into development somehow. And and that would be with whatever change management processes that I have in place in my organization. Then from that instance, I could import into Visual Studio and let Visual Studio factor out the objects into separate project items that I can work on. Then I can do my development. As I'm developing, um, I will do builds inside of Visual Studio. When a build happens, what it's doing is it's using the offline model stored inside of Visual Studio. So there's no database instance in this scenario right now. I'm completely detached from any database. Uh, and it's looking inside its own model um, to make sure that all of the tables are compilable. So it's doing syntax checks. Right. Then it's doing actual model checks to make sure that um, primary keys and foreign keys match up to make sure that if I've created an index, that the table that the index is supposed to be on actually exists. Right. Um, the model is very um, verbose in that sense. It tracks all sorts of details. So that's what happens when I do a build. Then when I want to do a deploy, this is where the scenario reattaches to a database instance somewhere. So on an actual deploy, I should provide Visual Studio with some sort of um, database connection settings. And then it will use those database connection settings to go out to the database, um, and it will generate the incremental change script and then execute those objects against the database. Now, that's if I chose to deploy to a database. If I chose to deploy to a script, um, it's still going to do um, an incremental change. It will just export that to a script instead of actually executing those objects into the database. So, Richard, what that really means is that you can do a lot more database development at Starbucks, right? Uh, right. Or on yeah. the airplane. That's exactly. Well, I was also thinking from a licensing <laughs> perspective, I'm not going to end up with a whole bunch of SQL Server licenses for my dev team. Yeah, yeah. Well, instead of having to have uh, a test instance on everyone's machine um, or you know multiple test instances, like Daniel said, you you connect once, you import, and from that point forward, everything that you do is disconnected. So I joked about it, but you could you could be on an airplane or you could be um, you know anywhere that you need to be because at that point you're entirely self-contained. Now, of course, you'll you'll need to check your changes into the Team Foundation server uh, as you go along, and that's all standard workflow for the Visual Studio developer. Right. But you don't connect again until either you, you begin deploying or you want to do some sort of uh, schema comparison, which is another thing that we can do. Um, so it, it really it really provides a lot of uh, useful value to the, to the Visual Studio developer because um, you know they're, they're able to work in that, that manner which they're already used to working today. And, and just to get this on the record, at no point is anybody here suggesting that we're actually deploying to a production server. We're deploying to QA, and they're doing the testing. You know, there's some staging level that completely abstracts us from the production server. Sometime later, we'll push the production server. Yeah, this is Daniel Wood. Let me be clear that um, we're not at all proposing that you use Visual Studio to deploy to production or make changes straight into production. Um, That's not what this tool is about. Um, Now, in your larger ALM story... um, once you've adopted Team Foundation Server as part of your entire integration process, then I could see from Team Foundation Server moving um, from staging to production. But right. you, would ne- you would never want to go into Visual Studio and enter in your deploy connection settings, the database connection to your production server. Yeah, that would be bad. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, there should be layers of process between the, the build cycle, and what actually ends up going to production. And that's sure. that change management process that we open the conversation with, and it's there sure. for a reason. Well, and I, and I think that what as we get a more complete lifecycle management tool here where we're handling the whole thing, it becomes more and more clear why these layers existed all along and that you just can't ignore them anymore. You must do this if you're going to survive. That's right. And... Uh, yeah, it- and- as the tool matures, um, and I'm talking about um, the ALM tool set as a whole, as it matures, um, not only is it going to become more clear why each of these process steps exist, 
but it's going to be easier to j- draw discrete lines around them and execute inside of each of those boxes. And that's, that's the part that I find fairly exciting, is that I'm going to be able to point to a process step in my ALM process and say, okay, this step executes you know, this bit in my process. These people are responsible. And right. I know exactly what goes in and exactly what comes out and when. Guys, I love it. When are we going to actually see it? Well, you can actually go see it uh, right now if you'd like to. The The product releases in, in April, just about a week after Visual Studio 2010 releases. But for those of you who can't wait, sounds like you, Richard, you can go uh, <laughs> get, <laughs> you can go actually sign up for the beta program. Well, we've been working closely with Microsoft and, they, uh, and their beta program. Um, so you do need to be a beta tester for Visual Studio 2010. But you can download a, a beta of uh, the Toad extension for Visual Studio and play with that. In fact, we're uh, we're real eager to be you know interacting with as many um, you know Visual Studio developers as possible. So um, we're even giving away an Apple iPad for for those who are so inclined. But um, yeah, you can definitely put your hands on it. It's at TeamFuse.net. Sounds great, and it's Fuse with a Z. That's right. That's right. We had to be different. Awesome. Well, guys, that just about wraps it up. Um... Well, that sounds like a great product, and in, in, um, I'm sure the Oracle developers among us will be excited, and the .NET developers will also be excited. I think so, too. I uh, sure hope so. I'm one in both, and I'm excited. Excellent. <laughs> Dan Wood, Dan Norwood, thank you very much, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a